and All right, here we go. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. The church is involved in a catch-and-release program a catch-and-release program that is not preparing people for the second coming of Jesus Christ. They are radically unprepared. We may seem and think that we have evangelized for destiny, but the reality is we have discipled almost no one. A radically discipled or a radically evangelized nation said one voice here on this program in the early 1990s, but a radically undiscipled nation. How is that possible when the thrust of Jesus' great commission was to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded? It seems that we latched on to the baptizing them, Mark, but forgot the essential element the heart of discipleship, the heart of the kingdom of God, and that is to disciple people, to teach them to obey everything that God has commanded. How did we do this? And how is it that we have caught so many people, that is, we have evangelized or made converts of many, many people, but have failed to actually prepare them for what they were born for? Isn't that a form of child abuse? Are we engaged in spiritual child abuse, having failed to make disciples? And what is a disciple anyway? We want to talk about that here on Viewpoint today. And believe you me, this subject today goes to the very heart of why we are here, of why you are supposed to be here, and pastors, why we're all supposed to be here. So I hope you'll stay tuned. It's conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. And we have a special guest who is joining us here who has captured my attention through his book, The Disciple Dilemma. He says we need to rethink and reform how the church does discipleship. Well, the problem is the church is not an institution. The church is a body of believers. It's not some 501c3 organization formed on the, uh, under the auspices of your state or the United States government. It is, in fact, authorized under the auspices and directed under the auspices of the commander-in-chief of the Lord's army, Jesus Christ himself. So, what is the significance of that, and is it possible that we have gone so far astray in our understanding of what Jesus expected us to do that we really have deceived the people and perhaps even ended up with national disgrace for having failed to truly make disciples. All that here on Viewpoint Today, 
And again, I'm so glad that you have joined us. It's always a privilege to be able to join with you to confront the deepest, deepest issues of America's heart and home from God's eternal perspective. Today goes right to the heart of the matter with our special guest, Dennis Allen, who is joining us with his book, The Disciple Dilemma. Dennis, you have a masterpiece. You've delivered it. I have read it, and I'm delighted. Thanks for joining us. Chuck, thanks for having me. I'm amped to be with you. And where are you located, my friend? Well, I'm in this little town called D.C., at least that's the end of it, so it starts with Washington on the on the north side of town. Well, District of Columbia, I understand that they may be interested in changing their name since it's based upon Columbus, and Columbus has fallen out of favor in our country. Yeah, sometimes I guess we get accused of being a logic-free zone up there, don't we? It's amazing. So what do you do up there in D.C.? Well, my day job is uh, in what I jokingly refer to as corporate repentance. And what I mean by that is... Corporate repentance. Now, there's a novel term. (laughs) So if we think about the idea of repentance being to turn around, my world is uh, working with Wall Street and investment banking firms when they acquire corporations and the corporations get in trouble, they start struggling, they're having difficulties, uh, and uh, start depleting themselves. I get to come in as a chief executive officer, sometimes for a few months, sometimes for a few years, mm-hmm. as an employee of the company, one of the people. And my job is to help those people figure out where they're heading and how they're going to get there and get back on their feet and get healthy. Are you telling me that God would raise up a voice out of corporate America that could help us discern what ails the church. Well, I guess if Balaam's donkey can talk, I guess a CEO can occasionally too. Well, I was going to reference that, but I didn't want to abuse your name. I didn't want to call you a donkey, (laughs) my friend. But it it is interesting. God can raise up a lawyer. He can raise up uh, a, a corporate executive. He can raise up just about any voice that he wants to in order to get his message across, can't he? He sure can, and that's one of the great pieces about being a disciple. There is no limitation to the vocational bandwidth that God has given us to be out there in the world connecting with the world. Well, the writing of your book is so piercing, uh, so analytical from a corporate executive's viewpoint. On the other hand, desperately serious and extremely humorous in some respects. You have done an awful lot to capture our attention here, and that's why I wanted to make sure uh, that you would come on the program with us, because I believe that this matter of discipleship, or the lack thereof, is at the very heart of what has happened to our country over the past 75 years. What say you? I would say that when you start looking at symptoms like a church that is at war with itself, disunity where disciples are uh, unable really to connect with each other unless they're in uh, a synchronized tribe. There's departures walking away at rapid rates, mutinous, doubting that Jesus is even God. I'd I'd say that we need to look at what has Jesus given us as the operating system to address that, and it's this thing called being a disciple. That was fascinating. Right as you open your book, you talk about, you liken this matter of discipleship Uh, to uh, Jesus' operating system for the church. And we know that operating systems 
even if we're somewhat ignorant of uh, all of this technology, we know that operating systems can be corrupted. And uh, your analysis is that this fundamental operating system of discipleship has been profoundly corrupted. It's a stunning problem, and it's so familiar to us. There used to be a joke about uh, some operating systems and computers that uh, we expect them every so often, every few hours or every few days, just to lock up, shut down, and lose all of our work, and we thought that was perfectly normal. And in many respects, we see that same problem here in the universe of a disciple. We can't understand why disciples are going mute, why they're going brittle, why they're going fragile, why they're walking off campus. But we think, well, I guess that's just the way it is, and we move on. Well, we're going to have to take a, a, a serious look at this, which we're going to do in the next 40 minutes or so. And I'm so glad that you've joined us. Friends, the book, The Disciple Dilemma, it is a must, must read for every serious question. We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Titanic was a technological marvel. No one had ever, ever seen anything like it. In fact, it was said to be the unsinkable. The problem is that the unthinkable happened to the unsinkable. Many people look at the church as we understand it, and we say, oh, well, this is great. Look at all these mega churches, 5,000, 10,000, 20, even 45,000 people. Yes, but that's what they thought about the Titanic. They really did. In fact, one actually came out and said with such amazing hubris, even God couldn't sink this ship. Even God couldn't sink this ship. But what is it that sank the ship? Part of it was pride, institutional pride, corporate pride. Boy, are we ever going to make the market on this one. We're going to increase the speed, even though there are icebergs in the field ahead. Oh, but we can do it because we are us. We're the church. We are charging ahead full speed and making converts like mad. The problem is that the iceberg reveals itself not so much above the surface, but what's going on underneath. And that's what caused 1,500-plus people their lives on that maiden voyage of the Titanic. What is causing people their spiritual lives today? Could it be that there is a serious problem, a dilemma, a serious problem, with an iceberg, a discipleship iceberg that nobody really sees for what it is, but it's causing irreparable harm everywhere. And if that be true, what can we do about it? That's our program here today on Viewpoint with our special guest, Dennis Allen. Again, the book, The Disciple Dilemma, 
Rethinking and Reforming How the Church Does Discipleship. This uh, $19 is going to put this life-changing book in your hands. I say life-changing. This is not a book about theories. This is a book about reality, life, the most important thing that Jesus had to say about why we're here and why he came. That's why it's so important. And actually, friend, you are definitely going to want to get an extra copy, not only for yourself, but for your pastor. You really are. This is a message for every one of us. And it's about time because Jesus is coming soon. What say you, Dennis Allen? Well, you say it really well, Chuck. I, I think the the Titanic was a vehicle that was not designed to go where it went. Everybody thought it was. It looked really good. But it got into a place where it couldn't operate well in the environment it was placed in. And to a degree, we can use that same illustration when we talk about discipleship. Sure. The church as a mass gathering, as a group, as an institution, even as a group of staff and a group of programs and ministries and sermons, that's not the design Jesus gave us for discipleship. It's a vitamin for it. It's a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the core of discipleship. And so the conversation that I really appreciate about your trajectory here is we're looking at discipleship, and we want to know what's the core, and why is it we can't count on the way we've been doing it to work. Well, when we look at the statistics that are coming down and have been coming down for the past 30, 40 years from George Barna, my friend out there formerly in California and now in uh, Arizona, and uh, the uh, Pew Research and all of these various research, even George Gallup uh, has been in on the act before his uh, demise, uh, every statistic has shown that we are not making genuine disciples among professing Christians in this country. Do I have that correct? We've got some numbers that just push you back on your heels when you hear them. And we've gone over those numbers so many times here on Viewpoint. I hate to drag them out over and over again. Uh, They're so easily discovered, but... When you talk about absolute truth, for instance, uh, you recite in your book, absolute truth doesn't even exist for 40% of professing Christians. And talking about faith is not my job for 35% of professing Christians. And 92% don't believe that sharing their faith is important. And interestingly, the average tithe today, you say, is 2.5%. Actually, that's 2.5% among so-called evangelicals. It's much less than that among other professing Christians. So the reality is, if Jesus was right when he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, we know where our heart is because our treasure ain't there. And when we put that set of numbers in front of folks in um, our research uh, with the disciple dilemma, what we were asking was, if you look at these numbers and these issues, do you think we have a problem? In other words, these are just the symptoms. This isn't the cause. Mm -hmm. And so your book, actually, your heart is to deal with the cause. When you go into a business, when you go into a corporation, wherever you're called, you're not going in there just to salve the symptoms 
to make people feel better. You're actually going in there to correct, to discover, to discern, and then correct the underlying problems, aren't you? The world of dealing with people is all about finding the roots of the issues and getting at them. If you keep blowing your nose, you don't get rid of a cold. You've got to get past the symptoms <laughs> to find the roots. Why do you have to use such simple illustrations like that? Well, in my former <laughs> life, I was a fighter pilot, and we don't we don't know how to use anything over one-syllable words, Chuck, so you'll just have to pardon me. <laughs> well, you were a fighter pilot, and we're in a fight today, aren't we? Man, this is a dogfight like none you've ever seen. So we need really good weapons, and we need really good pilots in the discipleship sense. Well, the uh, Apostle Paul told his ministry sidekick, Timothy, that he had been discipling. He said, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. And don't become entangled again with all of the stuff around you in the culture. Uh, that concept just doesn't much compute today in our churches, does it? No, it doesn't. In fact, we even miss the other piece of the puzzle, which uh, I think you were alluding to in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul says, look, the weapons you're fighting with, these aren't weapons like anything you've got in the world. This is the stuff that deals with the spiritual arena. We have to have the weapons that are given to us by Christ for disciples. We can't do it with the weapons, the tools of the world. Question. It appears to me, and I think you have captured this in your book, that there are things that we can discern or should have been discerning if we were if we were truly spiritually minded, if we truly had been listening to Jesus' message, if we truly had embraced his priorities, we would have identified these four different uh, problems. Uh, that you've described in your book. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting, isn't it, how the human race has forever thought, well, it's nice that God thought of that, but we can upgrade it, and here we go. We're going to work on it better, and we've got some better ideas. All right. Well, and sometimes for for decent reasons and sometimes for not decent reasons, but the upgrade is not a good idea when God's writing the source code. Interestingly, we have this idea that we can superimpose our own human viewpoint as co-equal with God's or even superior to. It seems to me that that was the problem that Satan had uh, on the Mount of God in the heavens. I will be like the Most High. And it seems that we're trying to do that ourselves. Jesus said, I'll build my church, you make disciples but we decided to build churches and have failed to make disciples. How do you figure? <laughs> Isn't it fascinating to see how history, going back 18 centuries, has played this same movie over and over again, which is, just thinking about some of these root cause issues, right? You have a highly persecuted church, and so one of the first causes that confronts us are people who go, oh, that's a big price to pay for faith in God. How about I just take the salvation, I check out of the persecution, and when things cool off, I'll get back in. They call those people the lapsy, and you can do a lot of research on the lapsy, and you can come up with a lot of perspectives, but at the end of the day, the phrase that we placed on the book to try to just get this across to everybody is optional lordship. One of the first hacks of discipleship is I really like the saved part, 
but the upgrade where I'm unconditionally surrendering, taking up my cross, and following the Lord Jesus Christ, nah, I'm there good. Are whole, now, you have really stepped on a landmine here, brother, because Ouch. The, one of the major arenas of so-called evangelical Christianity today will fight you tooth and nail, mocking the whole idea of lordship, and they'll say, look, we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's not about making Jesus Lord. It's just free. Salvation is free, and therefore, this lordship business, that's a gospel of works. That's what they say. Yeah, and you know, when you when you listen to the conversations, you find that there's this human tendency for quantifying the checklist that gets me the minimum threshold I need to get the deal done. I'm trying to get salvation. What's the lowest price I can pay for it? And I'll just take this idea of God said this grace thing, so I'll grab it, say the prayer, check out. I'm good. I can get back to what I was planning on doing at 1 o'clock because I got the salvation. I don't need the rest of it. Why would we need to repent if Jesus didn't need to be Lord? Repent of what? Yeah. I'm so cool. God loves me so much. All I need to do is just receive. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross. Uh, and that's the end of it. I can go on and jolly well do what I please for the rest of my life and count myself to uh, be the inheritor of the pearly gates. And I would argue for 1,800 years, we have repeated the mantra that all you really need to do is say the prayer, and then you're good. And we actually played with that idea with a guy called Simon the Stylite Elder, who was a guy who sat up on top of a pillar <laughs> out in the middle of Syria, uh-huh. preaching to the Bedouins, and he was considered the Billy Graham of his time. Only problem was, there was no discipleship associated with these Bedouins, and the the biographer of Simeon, the stylite elder, sitting up on top of this post, preaching to these Bedouins, said, well, they said that they accepted Jesus, whoever Jesus was, and about a week later, it was back to the old gods and back to the old sacrifices and back to the old ways. But but we've got Jesus. Well, interestingly, a number of years ago, it's at least 10 years ago now, I was uh, watching Larry King live when he was still on CNN. And uh, he was interviewing uh, Billy Graham. And he asked Billy Graham a very interesting question. He said, seeing how famous you are and such amazing Uh, results that you've had to your ministry with untold millions and millions and millions of followers and so on. Do you ever feel like maybe you didn't quite, you weren't quite successful, you didn't quite do what God wanted you to do? And Billy Graham's answer was very simple. He said, yes, I didn't make disciples. Tony Evans has a remark like that, that we hear him say frequently. He said, we don't need more Christians. Jesus needs more disciples. And this comes back to a point that I think you were making at the top of your show, which is parenthood is forever, discipleship's forever. It's not about getting somebody converted, handing them a Bible, and wishing them well. 
It's walking alongside people for a life journey or being sure they have someone else to walk alongside them, some wingmen. You know, isn't it interesting that God, Dennis, never commands us to make converts? There's not (laughs) one place in the whole Bible that commands us to make converts. Isn't that interesting? It's a fascinating kind of urban legend that has run rife through evangelicalism for so many decades now, right? Since okay, but let me ask you, the, let, let's talk about the why question, because you're, you're, you're an, uh, an analyst. You go into a corporation, and you don't see just what the symptoms are. You're probing below the surface. What's the reason for it? It's very simple. The reason at the core is the loss of mission, mission distraction, mission compromise, or complete mission collapse. Or mission redefined. Right. Hmm. We'll talk about that when we get back. The disciple dilemma, friends. Rethinking and reforming how the church does disciple. Oh, we just barely started. We just barely scratched the surface. You've got to get a copy of this book, $19, on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a for pastors only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Also on Chuck's website, listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast. Listen to the archives. Maybe you missed a program. Check it out at saveus.org. Also, there are some great resources, hospitality information, also information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, newsletters, articles, prophecy, Prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org. Optional lordship degrades discipleship. In other words, it basically undermines it. Undermines discipleship because a disciple is one who obeys God. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. His want-tos have been changed. So it's not about legalism. It's because he's truly and fully surrendered in his heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to Christ himself. That's what Jesus probably meant when he said, if you won't take up your cross and follow me, you cannot even be my disciple. In fact, he said, it's not just enough to take it up once. You've got to take it up every day you got to take it up every day. That's what Jesus said. When was the last time you heard that in your congregation, my dear friend? You begin to see the problem. The problem is we're not teaching the whole truth. We're not even discipling in our pulpits. And in case you have not figured this out, those of you who are more recent listeners to this program, one of the four pillars of this program is discipling for destiny. Discipling for destiny. And that's one of the reasons we bring on special guests, such as Dennis Allen here today. He has a message. God has put this message on his heart. He is part of the body of Christ. He's not even a pastor. He's not even, to my knowledge, he's not even 
supposedly ordained institutionally. But apparently God's ordained him with a message to deliver to all of us and to our pastors as well. The Disciple Dilemma. $19 on our website, saveus.org. Give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries. You want to save America? This is the message. This is the message. It's not about political salvation. It's about the heart. It's about repentance. It's about discipling. It's about teaching people to obey everything that God has commanded. Not to teach the pagans to live like Christians, but to teach the Christians not to live like pagans, but to live like Christians. Mm -hmm. Get a copy of the book. Life-changing, nation-changing, church-changing. This is a book for our time. And uh, I'm just so delighted, uh, Dennis. Uh, You have a chapter called uh, Catch and Release. What a title. And uh, quite frankly, that's going to be the title of our program here today, Catch and Release. And we hear an awful lot about that at our southern border, don't we? We hear about uh, uh, people being caught, uh, supposedly in the enforcement of the law, but not with any intent or purpose to actually enforce the law because it's all about numbers. It's all about building a voting empire rather than protecting a nation. Catch and release. So how does that work in the church? Let me preface it with this statement, because I've had a lot of traffic from people, especially pastors, saying, oh, man, you're really beating us down on this issue. And the purpose of talking about things like catch and release is to say, we don't want you to feel like this is a shame, blame, condemnation, Monday morning quarterback event. What we want you to understand is you in the seminaries have never been trained to think about something that's quite biblical and the commercial market understands quite well, but you've never been trained to see and understand that. And it leads to this sort of thing like catch and release. So that's, thanks for letting me get that on my, off my chest quickly. Um, You don't have so to make we apologies love you on this program, by the way. Well, thank you, brother. We, I mean, we love pastors. We need to gather as believers. We need to have small groups. We need to have worship, praise, mission trips, and all the activities that go with the ministries of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Catch and Release is the manifestation going back centuries that what we really need to do is get people to the salvation point. In other words, that's the end game. And to what make we're a trying to say in faith. All you need to do is say the magic words, say the magic prayer, and you win the door prize. And the reality of this is that when you think about catch and release, the problem becomes we think that that's the end when actually that's the end of the beginning of a Christian's life. That's the end of the beginning of a Christian's life. Now, let me ask and you a question. To... If we if we leave it there, does that not sound an awful lot like what uh, the former governor of Virginia was accused of when he got on national television, got on television, and he said, well, you know, if we're going to have an abortion, what if they're born alive? 
He says, well, we'll just lay them out on the table then, and we'll have a conversation between the doctor and the people, the parents, to decide what to do. So what we're actually doing is bringing forth birth and leaving them on the table to die. Isn't that really what's happening? You know, it's, it's amazing that you would bring up this issue with abortion in this kind of context, because to a degree, um, this kind of gun belt notching conversionism is, in fact, conception and abortion. A few survive, many don't. Mm-hmm. And that's a tragedy, whether we're thinking about the morality of abortion or whether we're talking about the fact that it is a tragedy that I would talk to somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ, welcome them to the Lord Jesus Christ's feet, have them plead to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, hand them a Bible, put them in a membership class, and hope their life looks out great. What a tragedy. So the membership class becomes the surrogate discipleship program. It's all about the local congregation. It's not about serving Christ at all. Right. So common in the business world, Chuck. Scripts that I run into over and over again with struggling businesses, which is, Bring these people in, don't train and teach them, don't have anybody walking alongside them, and then hire faster because they're going to leave really quick. They're going to break down really quick. They're going to screw things up really quick. It's no different in the church. And look, I'm not selling Harvard Business School. This is not about Harvard Business School. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ and the model, which is both Old Testament and New Testament of discipleship, and that is this. When we take our faith, public and to people, when we have a reason for the hope that's within us, as First Peter 3 talks about, what we are doing is we are bonding with people. We are becoming wingmen with those people. I live and die with my wingman, and that's for life. And if you can't stay with them for life because you're living in a different part of the world or something's changed, hand them off so they've got somebody else flying wingman with them. That's so crucial, and we don't get that. We think yeah. it's membership, and we're done. Well, and, of course, the big is better uh, concept, a big box everything, has contributed to the demise of discipleship. Uh, it, you may be shocked, maybe not. In the late 1980s, uh, I was uh, talking with the pastor of one of the fastest-growing churches in the country. And he made this statement to me. In, in a rather uh, offhand Uh, almost a braggadocia kind of a way. He said, I don't care how many people go out the back door as long as more come in the front door. That's a thin model of salvation, and I don't think you can argue it biblically, but you can sure feel good about it. So it's all about church growth. So when we went back, uh, I practiced law for 20 years in uh, Southern California, uh, Pasadena. And it was in Pasadena, California, where the church growth movement began. And uh, Fuller Seminary and all of that, I mean, that was just a mile from my law office. And I watched the trajectory of all of this begin to take place. And then the church growth movement that started in the 1970s metastasized into the seeker-sensitive movement in the 1990s. Both of those movements have been anti-discipleship movements and big-box churchianity movements 
bring more and more people in, but don't mess with the discipleship aspect because you might lose them in the process. Right. It becomes the problem, doesn't it, that uh, we don't want you to read the fine print because the terms and conditions could be off-putting to people who jumped in for the easy grab. And it was it was a fascinating problem corporately. Uh, you as an attorney have probably heard this name before. I don't know how familiar your listeners would be, but there is a management guru from the 60s and 70s whose name was Peter Drucker. Oh, yes. Peter, Peter Drucker is a fabulous management guy. He was a political scientist. He was oppressed under the Nazis. He came out and started trying to help society politically. And, he and came the, to the chief founder, that, the chief instructor to the uh, uh, founder of Saddleback Church and Ministries. Yeah, and and also Willow Creek. And Willow Creek. Yep. Yeah. And also, when you think about it, with uh, Robert some, of, some of the folks who helped franchise this sort of thing, and he was staring at Schuler's model and thinking, oh, there's my answer. I yep. can't get the politicians to fix anything socially, but I can get a bunch of Christians to get involved. They don't have an agenda. And it was a, it was a play out of Harvard Business School, Chuck. This is where you talk about scale, market, mm-hmm. power, and influence. And when those become the metrics that displace what God gave you as your measuring stick, you're going to create an organization that lives for its metrics. How many baptisms? How many members? How many did come in the front door? And don't worry about the ones going out the back door. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus ministered, there were those who followed, flocked to him when he performed the miracles. But then when he began to give the expectations, such as the Sermon on the Mount, not so many were following then. At one point, he had 500 that were following him. And then he said, look, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, in other words, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. And every single one of them left. That's what the Bible says. Every single one left. And then he turned to his disciples and said, are you going to leave too? So the idea of counting the numbers was irrelevant to Jesus. The only thing that mattered was, are you going to follow me with a whole heart and do my will? That's what mattered. We'll be talking about that in just a moment. The disciple dilemma. Be thinking of reforming have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Convert Christianity is a mirage. 
It looks and feels good, but it doesn't survive. The convert mirage promises people living water, but leads to a thirsty, dry well. Maybe that's the reason why an Iranian Christian woman, speaking of her time living in exile in the West among so-called believers, called her experience, listen to this, a satanic lullaby. Woe. A satanic lullaby. What do you think she meant by that, uh, Dennis? That one knocked me off my feet because she is specifically talking about her experience with the Western Christian Church. And she said, I am no longer, I am no longer feeling any need, any desire, any motivation, or any coaching to run after Jesus with all my heart, mind, and strength. I just come in and sit in the pew and catch the sermon and take the kids home and start life back up. It's breathtaking. It's breathtaking. Utterly breathtaking. And if this is the condition of the church in the West, Europe, America, and so on, how are we prepared for the soon coming of Christ? We see all the signs around us, and we still don't get it, Dennis. My plea for people here is to recognize that, that, for example, in this book, The Disciple Dilemma, we talked about six causes that we think are hiding in plain sight among us. And we're trying to suggest in the second half of the book, the path forward, the biblical path forward, Christ gave us so those causes don't cause the symptoms that we've been talking about. We've got to help our pastors our small group leaders, deacons, elders, trustee members, and committee members understand, ministry leaders understand, you're being snookered and hoodwinked, and it's all around you. Let's get the hack out of the system. Well, maybe big box churchianity then isn't the answer. Maybe we need to humble ourselves and not pursue power, person, position uh, as institutional churchianity is done to follow the model of big box uh, Walmart or whatever else it is. Uh, maybe to become smaller is to become greater. Well, I think that that's an absolutely valid point in America. We like to think big. You know, we all think that we're from Texas when it comes to the kind of organizations we're trying to build, and we want to see the glory (laughs) forward. I would like to make this point, though. I would like to say that there are, in large Christian organizations, the capacity to disciple well. I I think about campus outreach. I think about crusade. I think about the navigators. They know how to make large organizations function well in biblical discipleship. However, comma, if you don't make making disciples your mission, you're going to make the metrics your mission, and then the metrics are going to take you off of God's mission and put you on the metrics mission and then you're going to be faced with some of the stuff we've talked about. But it's only the metric mission that markets. You cannot market discipleship. It doesn't sell. It doesn't sell to anyone. You cannot raise funds on discipleship. You have to have numbers. I think that's part of our dilemma, isn't it? That that is the, Jesus says the love of money, that's where it is. The market has become the master, and the master has become 
a mascot. And so it may well be, as we look at the New Testament, telling us, die to yourself, to the tendencies of your markets and your cultures and your societies. We're going to have to accept the fact that we may not all be able to be on the cover of Time magazine as person of the year, cranking up the next amazing church. We may actually be fives and tens and fifties who are huddling together to pursue the Lord with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and then take that gospel out into the Wasn't world. Wasn't that the early to. church? That was, wasn't Isn't it? Isn't that the that early the church that so affected the Roman Empire for 200 years that Constantine then was able to co-opt that and turn it into an institutional enterprise? And there's your pivot point, isn't it? Because suddenly what was little hobbles of fives and sixes became thousands pounding on the barn door saying, hey, Constantine likes this, we like this, let us in. And Mm -hmm. what do we do now? Well, that's the question, isn't it? What do we do now? Obviously, they say... You can't continue to do the same thing and expect change. That You belong in an asylum if you, uh, if you think that's going to happen. Therefore, what should we do? My plea is for the pastors and the leaders who are listening to us talk about this. Step back and say, do we really have a problem? Is our membership depleting? Are we running out of our capital budgets? Are we looking at the forward bankruptcy of the organizations, which most of the research says is true. The Great Evangelical Recession, a book recently printed, says that by 2030, 40% of churches won't be able to afford their buildings, not unlike some of the things we've seen in England. Where well, that would be particularly true if uh, uh, the Biden- Bidenism uh, takes over the IRS and uh, the... 501c3 tax deductions are removed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a staggering number of implications when you look across government policy as well as market influence and the seductiveness of the big metric and the market metric. But the way out of this, the way out of this is biblical, and it says, folks, the glamour and the glory is not the way out. The way out is the weakness and the foolishness of the gospel. And until mm-hmm. we as church people are willing to say, I am surrendering unconditionally as a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm reconfiguring the mission of my people, and that's a challenge. We put a lot of chapters in on that statement. Mm-hmm. Until we reconfigure to understand it's not about glory and power. It's about the foolishness and weakness of the gospel that Christ gave us you're going to continue to inherit the symptoms because the causes aren't going away. We used to sing a song, At the Cross, At the Cross, where I first saw the light. But the cross was just the beginning. Jesus said, if you're not willing to take up your cross and take it up daily, you can't even be my disciple. So in other words, so-called Convert churchianity or Christianity isn't what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about following Jesus with a whole heart and doing his will. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus say, my will is to do the will of him that sent me? Now, as the Father sent me, even so I send you, to do the will of him that sent me. Isn't that what we should be doing? 
how poorly understood it is to bear up your own cross and come after me. How deeply misunderstood is this idea that, that salvation is absolutely free, but it will, as Bonhoeffer said, it will cost you your life. You've got to be ready for that. It is transformation. You made that statement earlier, and I love that because discipleship is not a task, it's not a status, and it's not a membership. It's the transformation of lives, of a life, and lives around that life. Yeah, one day at a time, one life at a time, one decision at a time, uh, one word at a time. And isn't it interesting that we're so clever that we have decided, we found a way to do an end run around the fundamentals of the faith. And you talk about uh, what happened in 1974 with the Lausanne uh, uh, Convention there in, in Switzerland. Uh, unfortunately, they declared for all time that the fundamental purpose of the church was not discipleship, but it was making converts. What do we do with that? Isn't it incredible that you had some of the real star power names signing up on this? Yeah. And it's true. It's true that discipleship was listed in the back of the book. It was in the fine print. So in other words, it's on page 20 of the New York Times. Yeah, we, yeah, you got the headline, and then if you're willing to go back to page 29 and catch the small print in the lower right-hand corner, yeah, you can pick that up. And it, <laughs> it, it became the challenge of, look, we think Jesus kind of overlooked – this is too cynical. I shouldn't say it that way, but it's like, you know, Jesus didn't think of this. We've got a great upgrade. Let's pick this up. There you go. And the reality is <laughs> we, turned, we turned Christianity into a sales campaign, a quota system. Exactly. And, oh, my, that's not us. Mm. In other words, the market commandeered the master. Bingo. And the interesting piece of the puzzle behind this is we researched the dilemma that we're talking about. Business originally said about the time that Constantine was beginning to gain real traction and get going, hey, I guess those church guys have got people figured out. Let's figure out what they're doing. Let's go do that. Mm -hmm. And corporate and commercial practices were following sort of from the third century forward the way to handle people. Get them jazzed up. Bring them in. Put them in the pews. Give them a little bit of a song and dance and then let them just do whatever it is they were supposed to do, which we don't really understand anyway. And fascinatingly, the church a few centuries later said, you know, things aren't going well for us. Let's check the business guys out. They must have this figured out. And the do loop begins, and it's not a good story. No, it is not a good story. And interestingly, Constantine commandeered that for political purposes to unify the empire, uh, when in fact it was fragmenting. Uh, It is amazing what Satan will do to deceive, uh, even using what purports to be good, to replace that which God has called us to do. My ask of folks would be, would you test drive the car? You don't have to buy it. Just take it out for a test drive, which is join this dialogue Chuck's raising up, because what he's talking about here is beautiful right on point. In fact, I'm a little talking about it because here's the master talking about it. But when you think about this conversation, 
there's some more traffic on it. Chuck, at some point, if we just mention the website, DiscipleDilemma.com, yeah, sure, I guess I just sure. did. Good, do DiscipleDilemma.com. Yeah. Go, go, out, go out there to DiscipleDilemma.com, and if you use the phrase Disciple Dilemma either on YouTube or the website.com or Instagram, um, Facebook, you'll see a lot of back and forth about this trying to say, here's the problem. Do you believe it's real? And if so, leaders, what should we do? The cost to embrace discipleship, genuine biblical discipleship, as the premier focus uh, of the church and our faith, is so immense that I dare say the majority of pastors will determine they can't afford it. It'll cost them numbers. They're not going to be able to preach their best life now anymore. They're going to have to talk about what Jesus did, obeying the Father, that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered, that Jesus said in Matthew, in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't love me, you won't. But if you do love me and obey me, I and my Father will manifest ourselves to you. Do you know what the most hated word in the church today is, Dennis? It's a, it's deemed a four-letter word, obey. <laughs> I have had dozens of pastors and, and Christian leaders on this program admit that. Now, well, if the if one watch... word that Jesus said is the one that pleases him and defines a disciple, what does that say? <laughs> many a tragedy many much humor is formed in tragedy and uh, we laugh a little bit about it but it's not a laughing matter and i am so grateful dennis that you have seen fit as a businessman as an expert going into finding remedies to real problems in businesses that you can go into the heart of the church and say look folks something's got to change we're in deep trouble. The Disciple Dilemma. $19, friends, will put this book in your hands, and you need to put it in your pastor's hand as well. It's on our website, saveus.org. And your website again, friend? DiscipleDilemma.com. DiscipleDilemma.com. All right, friends, we've cast out the, the stone of the bread upon the water. Who's going to pick it up? You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.